Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. In 1996, a young geriatrician at Johns Hopkins had a bold idea. Rather than having seniors come to the hospitals for care, why can't patients receive hospital-level care at home? He and his colleague wrote that, quote, the hospital is not an ideal care environment. Hospital treatment often deprives patients of their dignity and humanity. Iatrogenic complications, those arising from being in the hospital, are common and increase in, 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 in incidence with age. From that article, Dr. Bruce Leff created a hospital at home model that today cares for thousands of seniors with pneumonia, heart failure, and COVID-19. Studies have consistently demonstrated that receiving care from visiting physicians and nurses combined with remote monitoring and intravenous therapies provides at least as, as good of care as hospitals at lower costs with improved patient satisfaction and fewer complications. Today, the architect of that model, a professor of medicine and a geriatrician at Johns Hopkins, and a good friend, Bruce Leff, joins us on Chet Talks. Bruce, welcome. Great to be here, Ray. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so tell us, why did you create Hospital at Home? So it's a, it's a long story. Um, so I did my primary care internal medicine training at uh, what was then Francis Scott Key Medical Center, what before that was the Baltimore City Hospitals, and what now is Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. And in that training as second year general medicine residents, uh, we picked up additional ambulatory experiences. And one of mine was uh, home-based primary care. So we had a program then, and we have a, still have that program today, where older homebound adults who live in Southeast Baltimore, who uh, typically have multiple chronic conditions and functional impairment and often limited social capital, uh, they often had a lot of trouble getting to the clinic because they could not get out of the house. They were homebound. So our general medicine residents and geriatric fellows and attendings provided ongoing longitudinal care in the home and home-based primary care. And in that experience, which I, I loved, it really changed my, um, you know, my orientation in medicine towards geriatrics and towards home and community-based care, you know, for a number of reasons. You know, you really learned how to educate patients and communicate with them. You really learned how to do a physical exam because the echocardiogram wasn't in the room next door. And, you know, you learned to develop really thoughtful differentials and how to prioritize what you're actually going to do for folks. But also in that experience, we had a lot of uh, instances where people would develop acute illness that would typically be cared for in a hospital. MI, pulmonary edema, heart failure, pneumonia, and they would often refuse to go to the hospital. And, you know, you say, well, why are you refusing to go to the hospital? And, you know, a typical, a not atypical comment, uh, you know, one that really sticks in my mind by a gentleman named Walter, who I carry a picture on a slide when I give talks on this topic. You know, we were at his home one day and he had a pneumonia and we said, Walter, you need to go to the hospital. And he looked at us and he said, I am so sick and tired of you geniuses from Hopkins. You guys are great doctors, but you run a crappy hotel and I'm not going to the hospital. And part of it was that he had lousy experiences in the hospital. You know, he couldn't get his 
breathing treatments on time. It was kind of lonely for him. You know, he's sitting in the hospital, didn't have a lot of interaction with people. Uh, you know, he couldn't get out of bed very much because it wasn't easy to get around in the hospital. So he became more functionally dependent. One time he developed acute delirium, an acute confusional state, and he was physically restrained. And he never forgot that. He talked about that for the rest of his life. It was the most humiliating experience in his whole life. So a lot of folks who uh, would refuse to go to the hospital. And then I would say still one of the more challenging clinical decisions I have to make in my ambulatory practice on a fairly regular uh, basis is that when someone comes to clinic and they are acutely ill and they need to be in the hospital or need acute care, uh, do I send them to the hospital? Because, you know, I know I can take care of the pneumonia or the heart failure or the other problem, but will sending them to the hospital actually result overall in a worse outcome? Will they be put to bed, become more functionally impaired, be unable to go home and have to go to a nursing home? Will they develop delirium and accelerate cognitive impairment? You know, those are the kinds of considerations that, uh, you know, a lot of doctors think about, geriatricians think about this a lot. And, you know, over the last 20, 20 25 years with, you know, the uh, To Air is Human and the Institute of Medicine reports and the recognition of these effects, you know, now called the hospital disability, hospital associated disability syndrome, it's really coming more to the fore. So those were kind of the reasons we thought to develop hospital at home. We knew as, as geriatricians, we could probably do some level of acute care in the home. And we thought it might uh, be, have better outcomes for, for our patients. And we, we thought it would be useful to study that. It's kind of odd that we ask sick patients to come see us on our terms. Uh, in reality, you know, generally healthy clinicians like you and me should be seeing patients uh, on their terms. Right. Um, so you came up with this idea of providing hospital level care in the home. You work at Johns Hopkins and Johns Hopkins says. Uh, well, you know, initially, you know, we had some challenges. So I started working on this back in 1994 when I first joined faculty at Hopkins. Um, the first thing we did was to try and figure out who and what we could treat in hospital at home. So we did some claims based work to figure out what were the common conditions that older adults were hospitalized with, you know, from among those conditions and thinking about our experience in home-based care, you know, what could we take care of safely and how would we do that? And what sorts of protocols could we come, to do, come up with to do that? We also did some early work back then in, in, in the 90s to figure out, well, if we built this thing, would, actually, would people actually want to get care in it? So one of the first things we did after targeting a few conditions and our initial set of conditions were uh, people with pneumonia and heart, exacerbations of heart failure and obstructive pulmonary disease and cellulitis, you know, certain skin infections. We developed protocols to, and validated protocols to choose from among the people who, with those conditions who needed to be in the hospital, what portion of those could be taken care of at home? What are the clinical characteristics of those folks who need hospital level care, could we take care of at home? We developed those, we validated those. Turned out that usually about a quarter to a third of people who are admitted to hospitals with those conditions can be taken care of safely at home. If you, you know, have physicians, you know, 
providing medical care, nurses going to the home, if you can provide intravenous medications and fluids and do basic lab tests and x-rays and ultrasound in the home, you can do quite a bit uh, in the home. And then we did studies where we would take people who were admitted to the acute hospital with those conditions who met our admission criteria and we would get to them in the hospital the next day and we said, hey, if, if you had had this condition and someone came to the emergency department yesterday when you were down there and offered you this hospital at home, would you want that kind of care? And the majority of older adults said, yes, I would like that kind of care. Not everyone. Not everyone wants that, uh, but clearly a majority. And, you know, there have been lots of studies and we've, we've looked at that over time. There's clearly a subset of people who value the convenience of getting care in the home. And then there are some people who have an inherent belief that the hospital is a safer place to get care and want to be in the hospital. I think that is something that's probably been changing over the last two to three months uh, in the context of, of, of the COVID pandemic. But back then, uh, you know, and increasingly over time, people seem to value getting care in the home. So, so we I then took that. Um, can, I stop, can I stop you there? Sure. So in 2006, you told the Wall Street Journal that the Institutional Review Board at Johns Hopkins said, which is reviews research protocols, said, right. quote, you guys must be crazy. They thought the model, hospital at home, was inherently unsafe. I'll ask you today, are hospitals inherently unsafe? So uh, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll give a slightly long-winded answer. Uh, so the, the experience we had with our institutional review boards back in the late 90s was interesting, and it took us about a year to get our first clinical pilot approved by the IRB. Uh, and they were extremely restrictive, and, and I respect that. They, they have a hard job to do, and their job is to protect, uh, protect uh, research subjects. But remembering that the uh, IRB at Hopkins was, uh, the members were all folks who are Hopkins faculty, who are very hospital-focused and hospital-centric you know, centric doctors, and I say that in as neutral a way as possible, uh, and, you know, who didn't have the experience providing care in the home, and they were worried that it was unsafe. So we had to prove to them that that was, that was not the case. Um, and I do think that uh, ultimately we were able to show that the hospital is safe. Uh, and, and Ray, you probably know this, but if you look at meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials of hospital at home, and there have been dozens in the international literature. So hospital at home is probably one of the single best studied uh, health service delivery interventions ever. Uh, they find that the mortality rate, the risk of mortality at six months, if you're taking care of at home, compared to being taken care of in the hospital in randomized controlled trials is about 20% lower if you're taking care of at home. So that's a number needed to treat of 50. That is that for every 50 patients you treat at home. No, the, oh, 50, yeah. Number needed to treat of 50. So for every 50 patients you treat at home compared with the hospital, one more will be alive at six months. So that number needed to treat is better than most interventions, better than most drugs that we, we give to people. And if hospital at home were a drug or a device, you know, I definitely wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. I'd be, you know, on a beach in the Caymans <laughs> counting, counting the billions of dollars because it would be a blockbuster drug, right? But, but you tell me, are hospitals inherently unsafe? 
I think hospitals for certain populations are inherently unsafe. I do. I do. Good. That's all right. You can just say yes. We got it. I can uh, say yes. You got it. Now, now I'm, I'm going to lose my job, but that's, that's okay. All right. That's okay. No problem. You're tenured. Uh, that's no the problem. whole point of tenure is to be able to be provocative and profess. Right. Uh, but, you know, and, and hospitals, um, you know, could definitely be safer. But, you know, it's not just that hospitals are unsafe. It's the fact that older adults, frail older adults are quite vulnerable. And many hospitals have not implemented systems to make sure that older adults can, can thrive while they're patients. And it's hard. It's not a little easy. more on hospital at home. Then we're going to talk about COVID. You're a geriatrician, a huge issue in your, for your population. So what's the state of hospital at home? How many hospitals? How many patients? How do people get it? Yeah, so it's changing very quickly. Um, right now, there are probably somewhere between 20 and 40 active programs uh, around the country of various sizes. Uh, probably several thousand people now being taken care of uh, each year. So that number is very small. We're still very much in an early adopter phase of hospital at home. Um, but uh, those numbers are growing. Um, colleagues of mine from Mount Sinai uh, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, Al Sue and Linda DeCherry and David Levine and work sponsored by the John A. Hartford Foundation, we have uh, created a national hospital at home user group. So these are the active programs in hospital at home who want to come together uh, and work to create <clears throat> work to create hospital at home program standards and hospital at home quality measures to help, you know, help the program get adopted on a wider scale. Uh, also, we have a work group that's working on payment and regulatory uh, issues. So that's a real uh, advance. We now have several commercial entities that have entered the hospital at home space that are getting substantial uh, investment. And I think that's a very positive signal when you see outside money coming in to support those kinds of efforts that can actually lead to greater implementation and scale of hospital at home. Ray, you mentioned, and I know it's a great interest of yours, remote monitoring. Those kinds of modalities are being more widely adopted uh, in hospital at home. You're seeing more interest from Medicare Advantage entities. You're starting to see a lot more interest from commercial insurers. And then most recently, we've had, uh, in the context of the pan COVID pandemic, you may have seen that CMS has uh, created a regulatory relief, which uh, has, at least for now, identified the home as an alternate site of care to provide hospital-level care. And it'll be really important to see how much of that sticks after, um, you know, once the uh, pandemic ebbs a bit, although, you know, your, your prediction is as good as mine. I'm not quite sure how that ebb and flow uh, so we're is going to, get to, to that go. In one second, uh, a quick reply on disadvantages at, at hospital at home. Yeah, it's not for everyone and it's not for everything. And I think, you know, the challenge of getting hospital at home, the biggest challenges of getting hospital at home implemented at scale are, in my view, are these. Number one is a, it's an issue of culture, healthcare, healthcare delivery and healthcare culture and leadership. So <clears throat> I would say home-based models, home and community-based models in general, hospital at home probably even a bit more, they're very countercultural models. Um, I don't know, Ray, have you ever seen the video of the backward bicycle? So everyone's homework tonight, go onto YouTube and just put in the search engine backward bicycle. It's a three minute video or so. And what a guy does is he has people build him a bicycle 
that's backwards. That is when you turn the, the handlebars to the right, the wheel goes to the left. And he thought it would take him about, himself about a few hours to learn how to ride this bicycle. And it took him about six or eight months to learn how to do it. And he uses this as a metaphor for, for things that are hardwired, you may understand that you need to change, but actually knowing what to do, the difference between understanding and knowing how to change and what to change is very, very different. And I think a lot of health systems talk about and understand that they need to change, but they just don't know how to do it, right? So in the context of COVID, you saw what hospital systems did. They uh, were forced to, or they volunteered to shut down elective procedures and their surgeries, and they turned their hospitals into big ICUs. And basically they completely sabotaged their business models in order to create some capacity to take care of COVID patients. Most of them really did not need to do that. Most hospitals were at 50% capacity over the last two to three months. Hospital at Home could have served as a way to create, easily create surge capacity and then bring it down uh, when you didn't need to do that. So, so number one, so number of disadvantages, but number one, culture and leadership, not an easy thing for most health systems to know what to do, to know how to change. The other challenge for a hospital at home is that logistically, it's not, it's not the easiest model to build. It's complex, right? Basically, you're, you're creating a whole new kind of unit within your health system, and you're bringing it to the home. And the supply chain and logistics that we've developed for acute care is really works really well in the hospital for the most part, but bringing things to the home is actually a challenge. So my colleague from Mount Sinai, Al Su, former director of geriatrics there, has this fond of saying that, you know, and if any of you have lived in New York, you will know this, it's much easier to get Chinese food delivered in the middle of a blizzard at three o'clock in the morning in New York than it is to get oxygen delivered at 12 noon on a nice spring day, right? Those logistics, those supply chains, which have been designed for acute hospital-based care, have not yet been implemented at scale in the community. And we need that kind of thing to happen if hospital at home is really going to go to scale. So you're saying hospitals, even now, because COVID is still with us, could uh, increase their capacity, divert patients by enabling the vast majority of patients with COVID to be cared for in the home, whether they're 25 years old or 75 years old. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was still so much uncertainty, and there remains a fair bit of uncertainty around infectivity patterns and availability of PPE, that at the start, I would say that most hospital-at-home programs <clears throat> were a bit skittish or anxious about taking COVID patients. You know, they might not have the supply of PPE, the staffs were feeling unsafe about going to the home, and at the start of the pandemic, many hospital-at-home programs instead did a tremendous service for their health system. They said, look, we will take non-COVID people out of the ED directly home. We will also take non-COVID patients out of your hospital early. To, if they still need hospital-level care, we'll take them out of the hospital early and provide that hospital-level care in the home to create inpatient capacity, either for non-COVID or for COVID patients. And that was really a tremendous, uh, a tremendous ability to create capacity without having to build beds, without having to you know, create field hospitals and convention centers, which by and large went unused or substantially underused, right? So- Every you know, time field I saw those convention centers being built, I had pictures of 1918, the influenza pandemic, when they did very similar things and people died. 
So right. <clears throat> but, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of treasure was spent to build those things, either at the Javits Center, you know, one was built in the Detroit uh, Convention Center, one was built in Boston, you know, and their their average daily census was substantially below their capacity because the ability to coordinate those field hospitals with the surrounding health systems was quite challenging. Right. You had you had the naval ships pull into New York and pull into L.A. They were vastly underutilized. The one example that I know of that worked quite well was the field hospital that was set up in Central Park, basically across the street from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, because they were able to coordinate. And that one apparently worked quite well. Um, so your geriatrician, uh, COVID-19 has killed uh 25,000 residents of nursing homes, maybe a quarter of the Americans who've died in COVID are older or nursing home residents. At Columbia Presbyterian, 1,000 patients presented to the hospital, 435 of them were over 65, so over 40% of the patients coming into Columbia are over 65. Uh, what should be done? Yeah, it's a, really, it's a really interesting question. It's a very difficult question. Um, you know, so at some level, I think it's useful to think about what is a nursing home. So remember, early in the pandemic, you had outbreaks on cruise ships, right? And, and you may remember, I don't know, January, and, you know, our, our leader said, well, you know, we only have 15 cases, and they're all on the cruise ship, and we don't want those people to land on in America, because we don't want the numbers to go up. But, um, you know, a nursing home is a lot like a cruise ship. You, you have people who are confined in a space, and once the once there's an outbreak it's it becomes very hard to contain especially as you have staff going in and out of the facility and are likely uh serving as vectors for taking the the virus out of the nursing home into the community and then from the community and bringing it back to the nursing home so you know what are nursing homes to do well like everyone else they need Good PPE. They need to have an adequate supply of PPE, and they need to have their staff trained on how to use the PPE properly. Uh, they need testing, and they need uh, probably need surveillance testing because the data that I've seen suggests that, uh, especially in this population, you cannot rely on symptoms alone to understand who's infected and who may still be contagious. Um, I know. Of, I remember reading about one. Uh, it was probably an assisted living, but a, you know, a similar thing could happen where one assisted living operator brought in trailers for his staff to live at the facility so that they would not be going in and out and bringing the virus to the facility. And then I think that nursing home needs to have good on-site medical presence and the ability to collaborate with neighboring hospitals and health systems to bring people from a nursing home who really are sick and need what the hospital can do. Uh, but otherwise, you know, treating in place is probably a better strategy than transporting everyone who's COVID positive and may not actually need the hospital care uh, at that moment. So it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation. Uh, we've had a question, how safe is it to care for people with COVID either in a nursing home or a hospital at home? Is there a risk of sudden deterioration? For the provider, do you think is that? No, for the patient. Yeah, I you know, again, I am not a COVID expert. I'm not an ID expert. And, um, you know, I just came off the hospital wards, but I was on a non-COVID unit. So everything I'm telling you now is what I have been reading about and what I have heard from colleagues. What I've heard is, you know, what I understand is that you know, it's usually within that 
I don't know, three to 10 day window that people can suddenly deteriorate. And so there needs to be a way to monitor, monitor people, monitor oxygenation status, monitoring their clinical status. You know, that can be done by people, by staff in a nursing home. Uh, you know, that could also be done uh, aided by some uh, remote uh, monitoring type of equipment that could be brought into a nursing home, right? You can have people with, you know, oxygen saturation and respiratory rate monitors to keep an eye on things. So, um, but, you know, older adults in general tend to be more susceptible to uh, all sorts of illness. Uh, they tend to present with illness in atypical manners compared with younger adults. So it, it tends to be a more difficult situation in older adults. And also, you know, to the extent that nursing home residents, you know, constitute probably at least a quarter, if not more, of deaths that we've seen in COVID would, would suggest it's a particularly vulnerable population. You seem to suggest that uh, the infections are presumably not coming from the nursing home residents themselves because they themselves aren't leaving the nursing home. They have to be coming from people coming into the nursing home, presumably healthcare workers. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. Uh, are nursing homes inherently unsafe? Inherently unsafe? No. I mean, if, if they have proper procedures and proper protocols, you know, they should be able to safeguard their population. So many of our listeners have parents uh, who are in nursing homes. What would your advice to them be? Um, you know, make sure that it's a safe place. You know, see what the, the nursing home does in terms of having PPE available, in terms of how they're screening their staff uh, for symptoms. You know, a big challenge has been that at both nursing homes and hospitals and assisted living facilities is people, those facilities have, um, you know, reasonably chosen to keep, keep, keep visitors out of the nursing home, but that could also be a double-edged sword. You know, I have, you know, friends and colleagues whose parents are uh, in um, situations like that with dementia and they can have family visitors and it can be very distressing both for, uh, pay, you know, people who are living in the facilities and for family. You've written a lot about the migration of care uh, outside of, from hospitals and clinics to homes. Uh, you seem to be suggesting the same uh, also for nursing homes. What does future of elder care in the United States uh, look like? Yeah, it's, uh, that's also rapidly evolving. Over time, uh, nursing home uh, numbers have been decreasing at the same time that the population in assisted living uh, has been going up. So I think you've seen a decline in nursing homes, a rise in assisted living. I think you'll probably continue to see that trend go up, you know, uh, COVID notwithstanding. Um, you know, I think assisted living has probably been on hold for a few months, uh, but I'm also told that there is pent up demand for uh, folks to uh, enter assisted living, continuing care retirement communities. I think you're going to be seeing the movement towards those kinds of congregate, congregate settings. I think you're also going to see the, um, you know, uh, a lot of those situations can be very expensive places to get a slot in, so they're not available to, to everyone. And I think you're going to see some, uh, uh, the evolution of lower price points kinds of communities that people can uh, more easily afford rather than the very high-end assisted living, which is more common these days. For those of us who are a little bit less familiar with distinction between assisted living and a nursing home? So a nursing home, um, you know, there, there's a saying that if you've seen one nursing home, you, you've seen a lot of nursing homes. They're 
uh, highly regulated, federally regulated. Um, you know, staffing ratios are regulated, all, 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 every aspect about it. Uh, I tend to think, and it's, uh, it's a place where people live. It's a little bit more medicalized than, um, than residential at times, although in spirit, it's supposed to be a residential setting. Assisted living, you've seen one assisted living, you have seen one assisted living. The variability in the kinds of support services provided to people varies rather substantially. Uh, they're regulated at the state level. Uh, there's sometimes little or absolutely no medical uh, involvement within the facility. So it's a very different kind of care. And are the residents separate those so nursing homes like almost like a hospital in terms of, you know, room, 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 all often around a nursing station? Often feels like that, although, you know, they're trying to evolve those kinds of uh, architectural models as well. But if you walk into most nursing homes, it would feel very medicalized and more hospital-ish than if you walk into many assisted living facilities, which more of a hospitality model than a medical model. And the facility, the rooms for each individual are separated. Sometimes they could be physically separated from one another. Right, right. It and again, it depends on, you know, you know, platinum, gold, you know, it depends on five-star, you know, hospitality versus three-star hospitality, not CMS rating, sorry. Uh, so we've got lots of questions on the Q&A. I'm gonna enter, get to those in just a second, but uh, please put them in. I'm gonna quickly, before we go to that academic medical center, so uh, the pandemic has highlighted the best of academic medical centers, you know, uh, unprecedented efforts uh, to respond in a short period of time to a public health emergency. A number of the people who have uh, worked have not had a sufficient uh, personal protective equipment. Some have even died. People have worked heroic uh, long shifts, especially in New York City. And then we see the worst of uh, medical centers. They're losing two to eight million dollars a day. And the setting of a public health emergency has become quite clear that medical centers don't get paid to prevent illness. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, you really have seen the best of the medical profession step forward, both at academic centers and, you know, and community hospitals and, you know, private practices and, and all around. And I think this is, you know, this is what, what we signed up for when we, we entered the profession. And I think, you know, for the most part, people really have stood up and it's really been in many ways inspiring. And, uh, you know, I've watched my own colleagues and talked with a lot of folks around the country and it's, uh, it's remarkable and it's and it's wonderful and it reinforces, you know, the best of what of what we do. I think the um, what we've seen in terms of uh, how academic centers and other health systems have responded in terms of how they've managed their workforce and how they've managed their their assets has been a bit more challenging. I think a lot of that, the initial challenge was that you know just so much uncertainty about what the virus was and what the safety risks were and and how to move things along. But at some level, it was a little bit pitiful that any health system didn't have adequate PPE uh, and the inability to anticipate and prepare for that. It was, you know, at the federal level, you know, everything that went on between HHS and the CDC and the CDC and the administration, you know, you've all read reports that, you know, if, if we had reacted only a week or two earlier, tens of thousands of more people would be would be alive. So, you know, it hasn't been uh, a bright, shining moment for at, at every level, but, uh, you know, overall, I've really been inspired by how people have stood up and, you know, people have really made incredible sacrifice and some have made the ultimate sacrifice and, 
you know, they, that needs to be remembered. Uh, we'll go to questions now. Um, Christina Ramos Kayan uh, asked During COVID, have you seen many patients of hospital at home models transitioning to rehab at home models? Or the most of it, majority of patients of hospital at home able to discharge without significant needs? Yeah, I would say yes and yes. You know, one of the nice things over time with hospital at home is that as the model has developed various different service lines of hospital at home, of facility-based care that can now be provided in the home have evolved. So for instance, um, my colleagues at Mount Sinai uh, and I worked on a demonstration for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, a CMMI demonstration of hospital at home that was done at Mount Sinai uh, between 2014 and 2017. And initially, we had planned to do only uh, hospital at home substitution care, that is going from the emergency department directly home and bypassing the hospital altogether. Over time, we realized that once you have that tool developed, which is probably the hardest tool in the hospital at home toolbox, you can start to do a lot of things with it. So you can take people out of the hospital earlier to complete their hospitalization. But also once you have that done, that model, you can do things like provide skilled nursing facility care at home for people who need a rehab or OTPT heavy uh, post-acute care. And you can do that at home. And every patients, no patients turn that down, basically. Almost all of them. Mo people really do not want to go to a rehab facility, a skilled nursing facility for rehab. So you can do that at home under the hospital at home umbrella platform of services. So you are seeing more of that and there's more interest in that. Lots of questions for you. Uh, Jan Jernecka asks about mortality. Was your comparison between uh, mortality for hospital at home and traditional hospital risk adjusted? Yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Adam Dicker says, are, are there financial uh, models available in the public domain for hospital at home? Yeah, there are. Um, we had, um, after we did our CMMI demonstration, we used the data from that demo to inform an application <clears throat> to something called the PTAC. So um, the PTAC Emerge, and I'll, I'll tell you what that acronym stands for in a minute, but the 2015 MACRA legislation, the Medicare and CHIP Reauthorization Act, which gave, which brought value-based care to our healthcare system, specifically to Medicare, one of the parts of that bill created the PTAC, the Physician Focused Payment Technical Advisory Committee to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. <clears throat> there you have it. So under the PTAC, anyone could apply to HHS for um, basically a new payment model for anything that you wanted to do. And you can go on to, if you put into the Google search engine, PTAC, hospital at home, uh, you'll go to the, it'll take you to the page. And there were several applications from various hospital at home entities for new payment models. The one that uh, we proposed was basically for a, um, a slightly discounted DRG payment for a 30-day bundled bundle of care for the acute hospital at home care plus 30 days, <clears throat> 30 days of post-acute. All the documents that we had to supply to HHS are in the public domain. They are on that website. They include actuarial models and you can get a sense of those. There are also proposals from uh, at least one or two other hospital at home uh, entities. So 
there's a lot of information on the PTAC website. And if, uh, you know, if you want to reach out through Ray and I can, I can send you those links. Perfect. 15 questions from nearly a hundred participants today and going up. Jody Holtzman asks, will, and if so, how can hospital at home be integrated into a larger context of social determinants of health? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. Um, you know, I think one of the great advantages of providing care in the home is that, you know, you, it's impossible, it's virtually impossible to ignore social determinants, right? You walk through the front door and you just see you are in the middle of that patient's life milieu and you see poverty or riches and you see how medications are organized or not and you open the refrigerator and you can do a refrigerator biopsy to look to see for food um, insecurity or not. So the ability to bring uh, interventions to social determinants is part of hospital at home. And I think anyone who does hospital at home knows that. Anyone who does hospital at home knows that those have to be addressed. And they know that if you don't address those, you're going to have treatment failures. Unlike when you're in the hospital and you're so far away from a person's home, where a lot of what we do in terms of discharge planning, you know, think about medication reconciliation in the hospital. You know, that is science fiction. That is absolute that is just, you know, you might as well throw darts at a wall. It's, 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 it's not, it just doesn't work as opposed to medication reconciliation at the kitchen table. Although I'll tell you one thing I've really enjoyed about my video ambulatory visits is the ability to do kitchen table medication re reconciliation on the camera. That's actually been quite nice. Uh, do you have a story you want to share with us about a, a hospital at home when you went to see someone in their home and saw something you didn't expect to see? Yeah, I mean, there's always something surprising, whether it's access to food or you, you know, you have someone whom, in whom you've suspected, uh, say, alcohol use disorder, and they've denied it because they say, oh, I only have one drink a day. And then you kind of open the liquor cabinet, and you see the bottle of scotch, and you see the, what, the glass that they are using. And it's like, a, you know, it's like, a, it's a blender beaker, you know, and that's their one glass. I mean, there, there are just countless stories of that kind of thing you know, or seeing the interaction between patients and their family. You know, when you, you know, one of the things about being in someone's home compared to say the office or the hospital is the power dynamic completely changes, right? In the clinic, in the hospital, you know, I don't wear a white coat, but you know, I am, I am the power, I have the power and it's, you know, and people react in that way. When you go into their house, you're a guest and that changes everything. An important thing about going into people's home is learning how to be a good medical guest. But when you're as the guest, the patient and the family, they behave very differently. You know, so the daughter mouths off at the mom or the mom yells at the daughter or, you know, the son's not nice or super nice. And you just see the interaction that you would never see in the clinic because when people come to the clinic or the hospital, they're usually on their best behavior because they're a guest in your house. But you go to their home, you're in their house, and it's like, hey, this is my turf. I'm going to behave like I want to behave. So it, it's fascinating. So from a king to a medical guest, uh, Jacob Adams asks, uh, can you comment on the concept of creating hospital at home uh, from ratcheting up visiting nurse, nurse services? Yeah, so uh, the nurse services uh, are a critical component of hospital at home. Um, but, you know, you need that nurse service wed to, you know, pretty sophisticated 
you know, physician, nurse practitioner driven medical services for it to work. So you absolutely have to have very good nursing services in the home to make hospital at home work. But, you know, a, um, a skilled home healthcare agency that doesn't have a physician component or, or that kind of component can't can, cannot succeed as a hospital at home in my view. Um, um, Shalene Kinsler, I hope I got that right, asked what remote monitoring uses and devices have been most successful in terms of, a, of, of adoption and user or patient satisfaction? Yeah, so, you know, most of the ho most hospital at home programs until very recently haven't really done much in the way of remote monitoring at all. I can tell you in our first pilot that we did at Hopkins in the late 90s, the most sophisticated thing that we had was a, a first generation cell phone and a beeper, a pager that wasn't even a text pager. Um, and a lot of studies have been done in hospital at home shown advantages in a pre remote monitoring world. I think appropriately we're seeing that change because the monitoring can really be a very important tool. It's never a solution, but it can be a very important adjunctive tool to make hospital at home safer. Uh, you know, the ability to look in on a patient at any time through biometrically enhanced telemedicine allows hospital at home to take sicker patients, go a bit deeper into the, the tranche of any acuity level for any of the conditions that are being treated in hospital at home. Uh, and you're seeing, you know, blood pressure monitoring, pulse oximetry monitoring, uh, blood pressure, heart rate, basic vital signs, the ability to know what's being delivered through uh, an intravenous line and is that IV, uh, IV uh, infusion completed. So, and that's just gonna keep getting better and better and better. The other thing that the technology does, not necessarily the remote monitoring piece, but just good technology is it creates, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the safety protocols living underneath hospital at home and the redundancy in the supply chain. So you can create all sorts of more robust safety features for hospital at home. And it's just going to keep getting better and better and better and better. We have a lot of questions, five minutes. We're going to make these short uh, cost comparison of uh, hospital at home versus inpatient hospital care. Yeah, so lots of studies done. Um, I would say the net, net, net of those is that hospital at home for the acute portion of the admission, depending on the system, between 20 and 40% lower than uh, acute care hospital. Um, and, you know, you see that in, in the, some of the studies that have looked at more 30-day episodes, you tend to see similar, similar savings. And you Perfect. tend to actually see more of the savings for, on the post-acute side. Thank you, Kristen Yakimo, for that question. Uh, Patricia Bamba asks, uh, please address resident preferences. Um, just please address re resident preferences. For nursing home residents in New York, we need to be sure to review and renew most orders uh, considering current uh, resident health status, prognosis, and goals of care. Yeah, I think uh, hospital at home, you know, uh, because it allows you entree into someone's social conditions and social determinants, and because you know, when you're a guest in someone's home, you may behave a little better in their home than in another setting. I, I know I'm uh, not proud to admit it, but I think that's actually true for me. Um, you know, it becomes a little bit easier to have discussions regarding preferences for care. If you're in hospital at home, there's, you know, it is not a requirement that you be DNR, DNI, and, and all of that. Um, people just have to realize that what might happen in the context of, of a code situation might be a little bit different than if they were sitting 
in the hospital across from the nurse's station. But I think being in someone's home, whether it's hospital at home or home-based primary care or home-based palliative care or skilled home health care, uh, it does provide an opportunity to have more human discussions, uh, you know, when you are the guest rather than the king. Uh, Khalid Hassan asks, thanks you for your excellent insights. I have two elderly parents who both fall in the high-risk group for complications of COVID-19. If one of them gets infected, I'm afraid that the other will also. Uh, if I don't take my first effective parent to the hospital, what's your advice in such a scenario? Uh, it's difficult. Chances are by the time you realize that uh, one parent was affected, chances are the other would have already been exposed. Uh, and what I might do is, if possible, to have the other parent tested before I rushed the first parent off to the hospital or something like that. Difficult situation. If they were negative, you would probably encourage physical separation. If, if I would, but you could, you know, if they could be physically separated within the same house or apartment, I, I think I would um, go that route, especially if index parent didn't have a true need for hospital level services. And I think the preliminary estimates are around 30% of household contacts uh, will become infected if one person, but still the majority won't. Again, early data yes. uh, all to be played out. Tanya Yarconi asks, why is the focus still on the patient? When will the family caregiver be viewed as an integral part of home-based care? Yeah, so it's, it's actually very interesting and you'll see things on both sides of this. So back in the mid nineties, uh, when we were starting on this model, we wanted to get a payment waiver from CMS to do this in fee-for-service Medicare. So, you know, this is when you could just drive up to CMS and get a meeting and you didn't have to go through 18 layers of security to enter the building. And in very early conversations with CMS, they said, you know, it's a very interesting model. One thing that we're very worried about is that, that you are really just substituting family to become hospital staff in their home. And we're very worried about that. Now, uh, and you, it's a very interesting thing because you'll see some hospital at homes will have a requirement that the patient have a family caregiver who helps the care team. And some will say, we won't take someone unless there's family in the home. And then you'll have others will say, you know what, we'll take people even if they live alone and we'll provide a, uh, an aid in the home if someone needs help with their activities of daily living. My bias has always been not to require that the patient have family in the home and never to require a family to engage in providing care if that's something that they don't want to do. If they do want to do that, then enlisting them and making them part of the care team is perfectly appropriate. But different people have different preferences. Uh, one thing that we studied a while back was the caregiver family stress just associated with having someone getting hospital care at home compared with having a family member in the hospital and you're being the family. And what we found was that family of people who are being taken care of at home, their caregivers, their stress level was much less than if your loved one was in the hospital. And, you know, you wouldn't believe how much stress is associated with uh, parking at the hospital. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense. It is stressful and it is expensive, you know, but, um, you know, and then some people did feel anxious. And even if you don't ask someone to monitor the patient, you know, their family, they probably will. And there probably is some stress associated with that. But, you know, questions I want to get in here. Do you think we'll see an increase in the utilization of mobile clinics? Mobile clinics. Like the Red Cross Blood Mobile? Yeah, maybe, probably. I think, I think there's going to be a host of 
innovations that roll out of COVID and some will stick and, and some won't. And I think, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, not too long ago. I think, you know, despite all the disruption, I think, you know, my view is you're going to see hospitals and health systems try and claw their way back to their former business models. Because again, that's what they know how to do. Uh, Dennis Mulder, uh, provocative question. The U.S. Postal Service visits every home on nearly every day. What role could they play at hospital home for logistics and monitoring? Yeah, I don't know so much for hospital at home, but, you know, there have been a, a number of studies where postal workers have been used as eyes in the community to keep eye on frail older adults. And I think that's brilliant, you know, but meanwhile, we have, you know, an administration that wants to kill the postal service. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. Are there ways to care for younger adults um, medically complex at hospital at home rather than placing young people in nursing homes? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, a number of home-based primary care programs will take care of folks who have young, younger, unfortunate younger adults who have developmental disorders or, you know, spinal cord injuries. You know, in not, we don't do it much here, but in France, uh, their hospital at home, one of the service lines in their hospital at home is to take care of people who are on chronic ventilators. So they have about 40,000 people in France who are on ventilators at home. Their families provide a lot of that care. In the U.S., that's mostly based in facilities as opposed to the home. Lisa Plotnick, thank you for your question. So Bruce, uh, we're going to wrap up here. You're an accomplished academic at one of the top medical centers in the world. You created a novel care delivery that model that has improved the lives of thousands to date and many more to come. Yet you've said your proudest professional moment was serving in the U.S. Army as a medical officer in South Korea. Tell us why. Yeah, that was uh, an unexpected turn in life. My, uh, uh, my spouse went to medical school on an Army scholarship, and after her training was done, she uh, was sent to Seoul, Korea to, to serve uh, as a medical officer. And I kind of sort of had to join the army unless I wanted to be a civilian emergency department doc, which I could not have, could not have done all due respect to my ED, brilliant ED colleagues, but it wasn't for me. So I joined the army to be uh, an internist and geriatrician in Korea. And the army medical system was just terrific. You know, it's uh, totally socialized medicine, ironically enough. Uh, we were, you know, far away from any medical center. This was pre-internet. Uh, and it was, it was great, efficient, mission-driven care. And no one ever talked about money. Uh, it was always about the patient. Uh, you know, our nearest referral hospital was 5,000 miles away in Hawaii. <laughs> you know, as, and as an internist, we ran the intensive care units. We ran a primary care, our primary care clinics. We ran a consultation clinic. We ran a TB clinic. I learned how to do all sorts of procedures that I've never done since that time. And it was very, very scary. When you were on call, you were on call for the whole country. And it was very, very frightening at times. You were literally someone's, you and your colleagues were literally people's last best hope. Uh, and everyone pulled together and it was just a great experience. So mission-driven care, may we continue to do that for in caring uh, for people affected by this pandemic, Bruce? That would, be, that would be nice. And a lot of people are doing that, clearly. A lot of people and a lot of systems are stepping up to do that. It would be nice to see everyone do that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology. 
and check out our website at chettalks.org.